praise God that change is coming. From the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to the good Reverend Dr. King to the students sitting in at lunch counters in North Carolina. His faith in us has no limit. The good Lord has our very own women working on rocket ships. Virginia acts like Brown versus Board of Education never happened. They are never gonna allow a colored woman to just take classes at an all-white school. We don't want any trouble in here. Oh, I'm not here for any trouble, ma'am. What are you here for? A book. You have books in the colored section? It doesn't have what I'm looking for. Well, that's just the way it is. two different things. Just cause it's the way doesn't make it right. The FBI has arrested four white men yes. accused of throwing a firebomb into a Freedom Rider bus outside of Anniston, Alabama. The bus filled very rapidly with black smoke. We all hit the floor. All of us realized that the bus was on fire and uh, had to go out into the mob. The kids don't need to be watching they this. They need to see this. Well, when we got off the bus in Birmingham... Everybody needs to see this. ...took me and forced me out of the door and threw me into the crowd, and I was beaten by one big guy and several others. We think we are rendering a great service to our nation, for this is not a struggle for ourselves alone. It is a struggle to save the soul of America. Yes, Give sir. me the cape on the line. Shepard's trajectories need to be updated. Wow. Where is she? Everywhere I look, you're not where I need you to be. We're T-minus zero here. I put a lot of faith in you. There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean there's no bathroom for you there here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog, day and night, living off a of coffee from a pot none of you want to touch. Excuse me, if I have to go to the restroom a few times a day.
No more colored restrooms. No more white restrooms. Just plain old toilets. Here at NASA, we all pee the same color. One of the first lessons they taught us in preaching class in seminary was to avoid bathroom humor. Uh, there's just certain things you don't talk about in public. But I thought it'd be worth starting off the message today with a little bathroom humor as a reminder there's nothing funny about racism. That's a movie called Hidden Figures. It takes place in 1961, and America is in the middle of the space race. In 1961, America is also in the middle of the civil rights movement. It was 1954 that Brown versus the Board of Education, that landmark Supreme Court decision that desegregated schools. Here's Ruby Bridges trying to get into a white school or coming out of a white school. How scary must that have been for her? 1955, Rosa Parks arrested for refusing to give up her seat in a segregated bus. 1960, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee started doing these uh, sit-ins. You remember what sit-ins were? The law of the land was separate but equal. So in certain places in this country, it was uh, you know, lawful to have separate drinking fountains or separate restrooms or separate lunch counters in, in a restaurant for whites only as long as you also had a drinking fountain or a restroom or a lunch counter for blacks only. And so for these sit-ins, brave students started going, black students started going and sitting at the white only lunch counters, purposefully breaking the law as a way of showing how ridiculous the law actually was and that the law needed to change. In 1961, it was freedom rides. So uh, they were trying to protest the segregation of interstate bus travel in the Deep South. 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. gives his famous I Have a Dream speech, part of the March on Washington. In 1964, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. That's the sort of stuff that was happening in this country 60 years ago. And depending on your perspective, you might say, wow, we've come a long way. A lot has changed in uh, 60 years. Or depending on your perspective, you go, I can't believe that was only 60 years ago. Just 60 years ago. That's the kind of stuff going on in this country. 30 years ago, summer of 1990, I had just graduated from high school. And I spent that summer traveling all around the United States with a Christian music group. We would go from city to city, state to state, put on a concert at a different church pretty much every night that summer. And in the middle of that summer, we found ourselves at a church in Louisiana. And at the end of the concert, we would tear down all the equipment, uh, you know, the speakers and the microphones and the risers and the lights. We would pack it up. We'd put it back into the bus so that we could uh, travel to our next destination the next day. Usually, before we got done tearing everything down and packing everything up, our director would uh, come to us and say, here's your housing assignment. So uh, members of the church would host members of our tour in their homes overnight. We would use their guest bedroom, or we would, you know, they'd give us breakfast in the morning, you know, that sort of thing. So that particular night, we got everything packed up. We got the bus all loaded up. We still hadn't received our housing assignments. Our director said, everyone just get on the bus and just wait until we get this all, all sorted out. And so we waited and waited and waited. Finally, they gave us our housing assignments, and we went to the homes of uh, 
people of that church and had a good night's sleep and got breakfast and showered, came back to the bus, loaded up, started down the road to the next uh, city where our concert was going to be. We didn't get too far down the road before our director went to the front of the bus and grabbed the microphone and said, let me tell you what took so long to get your housing assignments last night. No one was willing to host Howard. Howard was the only black person on our tour, and not one Christian in that church was willing to let Howard come into their home and sleep on one of their beds, use their restroom, eat their food. For a lot of people here, this weekend has turned into a four-day weekend. Uh, School was canceled because of the weather on Friday. Uh, For some people, school is canceled tomorrow because we're pausing and we're going to remember the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., And we misremember Dr. King's life if we separate his civil rights work from his faith. It's his faith in Jesus Christ that compels him to do the work that he did to lead this civil rights movement to create a little more racial equality in this country. Did he do it perfectly? Of course not. No one can do anything perfectly. But as we continue to keep all eyes on Jesus this year, I want us to consider some of the words, some of the ideas of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., particularly from his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. He finds himself in jail for protesting unjust laws, breaking unjust laws, and in prison he gets... um, He writes this letter as a response to criticism from eight white religious leaders who are critiquing his movement, his methods. They think there's a better way to bring about racial equality than the way Dr. King is doing it. Some of their criticism was, you're moving too fast, just have a little bit of patience. It takes time to, you know, for the system to work and for uh, the legislative process to work, to pass the kind of laws that we need to pass. Just be patient. Some of the criticism was, you, you say that you are a nonviolent movement, but almost everywhere there's a sit-in or there's a protest of some kind, it always ends in violence. And uh, Dr. King's response to that was to say, yeah, you would probably blame Jesus for the violence of the crucifixion as well. It is not our fault when we peacefully protest that some people get mad and they come in and they start beating us up and shedding our blood. All kinds of protests and, and kind of the general Uh, critique of Dr. King by these eight white leaders was, your movement is just too extreme. Just too extreme. So here's what part of what King writes in response to being labeled an extremist. I must admit that I was initially disappointed in being so categorized. But as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Was not Jesus an extremist in love? When's the last time anyone accused you of being too extreme in the way you love people in Jesus' name? And so this is the question I want us to explore together today. All eyes on Jesus this month. We're just kind of getting to know Jesus. If Dr. King is right and Jesus is an extremist in love and Jesus extends this call to all people to follow me, Part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be willing to become radical and extreme in the way we reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 4. Last week, we left Jesus uh, at his baptism. What happens immediately after his baptism in chapter 4, he goes into the 
wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Anyone ever start a new job and it doesn't get off to a very good start? Uh, Jesus knows that pain. Hang in there. Uh, And it doesn't get better very quickly for Jesus. Here's what happens after the temptation. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee. So he hears that John, his cousin, the one who baptizes him, has been arrested. He knows that arrest is going to ultimately lead to his death. This is not good news. So he leaves that part of the country. He leaves southern Israel, Judea, to go to northern Israel, Galilee. First he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Eventually he ends up at Capernaum. And I'm guessing, if you look at your Bible, I'm guessing nobody has this verse underlined or highlighted in their Bible. Nobody's like, oh man, look at the deep, the rich theological truth that's just bouncing off of this passage of Scripture. But I want to challenge us on that a little bit. Let's look a little more closely and dig a little more deeply and see if there might be something really important. Why Why would Matthew be sure to include this anyway? At, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is just bouncing around from place to place. What do geographical names and places have to do with living a life of extreme love? Turns out they're very connected. Matthew doesn't give us a whole lot of details, but if you look in Luke's account of the, the same part of the story, he starts to fill in the gap a little bit. Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. Luke chapter 4 is the temptation uh, in in the wilderness. And after the temptation, Luke tells us, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he's hanging out there for quite a while. It's his custom every Sabbath to go to the synagogue, to go for worship. And one day, They hand Jesus the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he begins to read from this scroll. It's a part of Isaiah's prophecy that talks about the coming of the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. And after Jesus finishes reading it, here's what happens, Luke 4, verses 20 and 21. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him, looked at Jesus intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone in that congregation, all eyes, looking intently at Jesus, and he says, I'm the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. These are the kinds of things you do not say in public unless it's true, unless you are God. And the people initially are kind of excited to hear. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Lord's anointed, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Savior, I'm the one you've been waiting for, and they have been waiting for him. Generation after generation after generation, everyone wants to be a part of the generation that is alive when the Messiah comes. Wouldn't it be great to be the ones that actually get to see that? And so there's this buzz throughout the congregation. Maybe he is the one. And then Jesus keeps talking. And the more Jesus talks, the more convinced the people become, nah, he's not the one. The more Jesus talks, the more upset they get at Jesus. I'll start in verse 24. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman 
a Syrian. Why do the people in that synagogue, that congregation, why do they get so upset as Jesus is saying these words? Part of the reason was, in Jesus' day, maps were very helpful. Maps have borders, maps have boundaries. One of the things that maps in Jesus' day would do, maps would tell us who is lovable and who is not lovable. If you're on one side of the border, you're lovable. If you're on the other side of the border, you're not lovable. And so here's Jesus telling a story about people who are on the wrong side of the border. And he uses their scripture, the Old Testament Hebrew scripture. He says, remember Elijah, the great prophet? Elijah, the prophet of God? Whole lot of widows in Israel in his day. And yet, where does God send Elijah? To Sidon, to the land of Zarephath, to a foreign widow there to help her. What about uh, leprosy? All kinds of people with leprosy, and yet who's the only one that gets healed by Elisha, the prophet of God? It's Naaman, and Naaman isn't just a foreigner. It says he's from Syria. It was Aram. He was the Arameans in the Old Testament. Damascus is the capital city there. Not only was he a foreigner, he was the commander of the army, of the enemy of God. And that's the one that God heals. Part of what Jesus is doing, there's these ideas that people had about faith and about God, and from the very beginning, Jesus is messing with the way people, what they believe, uh, the way they view the world, and Jesus is trying to get them to rethink how faith works. It turns out there's a deep connection between geographical places in Jesus' life And what does it look like to be a person who lives a life of extreme love? Part of what Jesus is saying to this faithful congregation, he's asking them, are you really going to let a map tell you who to love? Or are you going to let God tell you who to love? And so thankfully, after this sermon, after speaking at at this place of worship, the faithful people there say, thank you, Jesus, good sermon, good sermon. We really needed to be reminded of this. Uh, Of course, God wants us to love all people. Thank you for this reminder. No, that's not how they respond. Uh, Let's go to verse 28. It's on the screen. Let's read together how they actually responded to Jesus. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. And Luke goes on to say they form a mob and they violently force Jesus from the synagogue to the edge of the town where there's a hill, there's a cliff. They want to throw Jesus down it so that Jesus dies. But because he's God, he's able to slip away. He leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Luke is very clear. The reason Jesus does not stay in his hometown of Nazareth, the place where he grew up, the place where his father uh, had his carpenter shop, the reason Jesus doesn't stay there is he wore out his welcome. He had the audacity to challenge the people of his hometown to think a little bigger when it comes to who does God want them to love and how does God want them to love. Jesus challenges them to love people they're not really interested in loving And they're like, yeah, we we don't really want you around here, Jesus. So he ends up in uh, Capernaum. If you go back to Matthew, Matthew initially has Jesus kind of bouncing around, ending up in Capernaum. But once he gets to Capernaum, Matthew tells us 
why Jesus ends up in Capernaum. And again, let's read this out loud together. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. I think it's supposed to be chapter 4, but I hurriedly put the wrong chapter down. Why does Jesus not stay in Nazareth? Why does he end up in Capernaum? It's to fill the prophecy, but look at the details of the prophecy. He wanted to get to a place where a lot of Gentiles lived. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. We use it every year at Christmas. Part of the darkness had to do with us versus them kind of understandings. One of the things maps are really good at doing is telling us who we are and who they are. It just kind of creates this us and them kind of thinking and mentality. And Jesus is trying to break through that from the very beginning of his ministry. He sets up his headquarters in Gentile land. And then he starts to build his team. This was our Bible reading for the day, Matthew 4. I'll start in verse 18. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me, I'll show you how to fish for people. They left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Jesus makes his headquarters in Gentile land. And you might say, who are the Gentiles? And very simply, it's anyone who wasn't Jewish was a Gentile. Us and them. At a more relational level, a Gentile could be someone who doesn't talk the way we talk, have the same language, someone who doesn't look the way we look, somebody who you know, maybe doesn't worship the same way we worship, someone who doesn't live the way we live, whether it's location or whether it's just kind of cultural, societal norms. And the easy thing to do with Gentiles is to ignore them. You know, they're not one of us. But of course, Jesus doesn't ignore anyone. Jesus is an extremist in love. He loves everyone always. And so as he's building his team, as he's calling them to follow me, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. He's teaching them how to fish for all people. How to live in such a way that it's like there's no longer Jew or Gentile, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. So there's this call and response that we see. Jesus calls out to people and, and they respond. Jesus calls and they respond. What I'd like to do with the rest of our time is just talk about what does that look like for you and me? How do we respond to this call that Jesus has in our life? And the starting place is to listen for the call. We talked a couple weeks ago about the rhythm of Jesus' life from solitude into community into mission to the world. And we talked about how solitude is just intentionally taking time to connect with God, to listen for what God might be saying to you. Have you started to put that into practice? If not, what are you waiting for? How, how can you intentionally make time in your life to be able to listen to the call of God on your life? And let me just say, I think one of the ways that God calls to us is through other people. So social media is this real fascinating 
thing to me. I think a lot of people would say, let's just get rid of it altogether. One of the things I love about social media, it makes it very easy for me to listen to people who view the world differently than I view the world, who, who believe things differently than, than what I believe. And you might say, well, why would that be important? Well, part of the reason it's important, repentance is changing our minds. Repentance is changing our minds. If we're always only listening to people who already believe the same thing we believe, we're never going to be changing our mind. When it comes to racial reality in this country, there's a lot of repenting that's needed, a lot of changing of mind that's needed. What if instead of deciding to just block everyone that you don't agree with, block everyone who doesn't see the world the way that you see the world, what if you decided to humble yourself a little and say, I want to try to listen with understanding? Most of the time, the reason you believe what you believe is because of the experiences that you've had in your life. Did you know that's the same for people who believe things differently than you? They believe it because of the experiences they've had in their life. And maybe they've had experiences that because you live in central Iowa, you just have not had. What if you humbled yourself enough to listen with understanding to why someone might see the world differently than you see the world? It's possible God would speak to you in that and cause you to change your mind and to repent and to actually become someone following after Jesus, becoming more and more extreme in the way that you love. Jesus has this call into people's lives, and the disciples respond. And did you notice their response was immediately, at once. So we listen for the call, and then we learn to respond quickly to the call. The criticism of Dr. King is he's moving too fast, and he's like, are you kidding me? You want me to wait? We've waited long enough. There are certain things that are intolerable. Why would you wait to do the right thing? Kevin Costner's character in that movie, as soon as his eyes kind of got open to some of the realities going on in that NASA workforce, he removes the colored coffee pot. He removes the colored restroom signs. He acts immediately. What does that look like for you and for me? When you go back to the office, when you go back to school, uh, when you have family gatherings... Somebody tells that joke that's over the line. What if instead of just laughing uncomfortably with everyone else, you actually had the courage to say, we've got to stop talking like that. It doesn't help anything. In fact, it makes things worse. Uh, one of the fascinating things about hidden figures to me, it's not just because it's about characters who are black. They're also women. So they're dealing with all kinds of sexism. What does it look like for you to start noticing and listening to this call of God in your life and responding immediately to create a world where there's just more respect and there's more love for all people? Sometimes we have decisions that we have to make in life that I don't, they, they don't carry those kinds of, that kind of consequence. Um, but a lot of people, as they're trying to make decisions, they just get sort of paralyzed because I just want so desperately to make the right decision. What if this week you just decided, I'm going to make decisions quickly and we're just going to trust God, we're going to live by faith, we're going to see what happens. And again, don't misunderstand me. Like, I, there are certain decisions that are going to impact your spouse and your family. You should make those decisions together. But there's a lot of decisions we have every day that we could learn to you know, respond more quickly and make those decisions more quickly. The Christian life, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see this, the Christian life is a life of action, activity, 
come, follow me. And immediately at once, they start moving, they start following. God is on the move. We say it around here a lot. And you probably want God to be on the move in your life. If you wonder, if you question, why isn't God on the move in my life? A good question for you to ask yourself as a follow-up is, am I moving with God? Am I responding quickly so that I can be going with God? It's going to be hard to see God on the move in your life if you're not actually willing to move with God. One final thought on this. To respond to this call that Jesus has and to respond to it quickly, part of what that means is we're going to have to leave something behind. The disciples, those first four, they drop their nets, they leave their boat, some of them leave their father behind in order to follow Jesus. What do you need to leave behind in order to move forward with Jesus? And part of the reason that uh, the disciples are able to do this is because they're living with a holy anticipation. God is on the move. God is calling us to follow. I can't wait to see where this is going to lead. And where it leads for them, at the end of Matthew 4, huge crowds of people from all over have come uh, to Jesus, and he begins doing miracles, healing people, casting out demons, changing lives, uh, ushering in the kingdom of God. Leaving something behind in order to follow Jesus meant these disciples were on the adventure of their life. It's felt like a bit of an adventure around here the last couple of months, kind of starting November 1st. We had the new uh, vision statement for us at Hope. It's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. And Pastor Mike came up here for vision night as we talked about the 10 for 10 goals and where is God asking us to follow him in the next decade here at at Lutheran Church of Hope. And it was really kind of exciting. And, And part of what we talked about in order to go where we think Jesus is calling us, we need more room, we need more space. And so we started talking about this giving campaign, building to a hope beyond. Since November 1st, since November 1st, this congregation just to the building. This congregation has given $1,297,000. Next slide. Uh, There, I can read that a little bit better. Uh, $323. No, not that one. Oh, man, it just ruined the surprise. (laughs) You didn't see it. That's That's just since November 1st. And that's in addition to, yeah, praise God for that. That's in addition to Everything you give on a weekly basis to keep the lights on, to keep the heat going, which is a good thing, and you know, to fund the ongoing ministries of the church, here's the total that we're at now for our expansion project, 4388000 roughly. So $5 million project, $4.5 million we can go, we can break ground. Let me just tell you what's happening this week is I've got a team of people, and we're going to be looking at the plans, and we're going to be talking about how do we make it work, you know, like right now. Uh, So be praying for that. Be praying for some uh, holy creativity as we figure out that. But understand 4.5 million gets us no lower level and and no class. We need 5 million eventually, but we can at least get started at at 4.5 million. So if God is calling you to give, respond quickly to the call is part of what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable talking about money, but the reason why I like to do it, and I think we need to do it, It's important to look at the numbers every once in a while because the numbers tell a story. The expansion of our facility, let's remind, let's always keep this in front of us. It's so that more and more people can meet Jesus. 
so that more and more people can meet Jesus. Last weekend after our uh, worship services here at Hope Ankeny, we gave the uh, you know, call for people to come and be baptized. 47 people came and were baptized, met Jesus in the waters of baptism for the first time. 47 people. Yes, that is definitely worth praising God for. Uh, over 5,000 people at Christmas Eve services. When you start to look at the numbers, the numbers tell a story. And, and when you do the math, you start to see God is on the move. God is taking us somewhere. And I hope you have a sense of holy anticipation. What is God going to do next in us and through us and for us? And as long as we make sure we, we get the order right that Jesus is the one in front, Jesus is the leader, and we follow Jesus. As long as we keep holding our actions up to the light, I can't wait to see what God does next. One more clip from uh, Hidden Figures. Take a look. work is that? I said, whose work is that? Catherine Goble, sir. Hello. How did you know the Redstone couldn't support orbital flight? That's classified information. It's top secret. Well, it's no secret why the Redstone tests keep failing. It's fine for suborbital flight, but it can't handle the weight of the capsule and push it into space. Numbers don't lie. When you figured all that out with this, half the data's redacted. Well, what's there tells the story if you read between the lines. The distance from launch to orbit, we know. Redstone mass, we know. Mercury capsule weight, we know. And the speeds are there in the data. You did the math. Yes, sir. I looked beyond. And how do you know about the Atlas rocket? That's not math. That data's not here, like you said. It's classified. I held it up to the light. You held it up to the light? Yes, sir. Well, there it is. Mm -hmm. Atlas. What's her name? Catherine Goble. Are you a spy, Catherine? Am I what? I said, are you a Russian spy? No, sir. I'm not Russian. 